And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So we're looking at this passage that we've just read here, in which we read about the power of God, and we read about the wisdom of God, and we find out that the locus of this wisdom of God that's being expressed to us, the place where it's all being set forth is in the design of God to, in pursuing love, save people from their sins through the atoning death of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. The leaders who were in Jerusalem, they would be considered the princes that are being referred to here, did not anticipate the loving sacrifice that God was going to be offering for their sins and the sins of the people at that time. When Paul says that he determines to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, he's declaring his commitment to know that Christ, who in self-giving love, died the death that we deserve in order that He might freely give us the eternal life that we don't deserve and that can be only gained through Him alone. So what I want to do as we look at this passage, and actually I want you to kind of focus your attention just on that verse 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I want you to see here that those individuals who gathered and put their efforts together to put to death the Lord Jesus Christ did not know what was before them. They were not aware, they did not calculate, they were ignorant before the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the 70 rulers of Israel, the Roman authorities, Pilate himself, were ignorant of what God was doing and what God was planning and how God was providing a means of atonement for their sins and the sins of the people. The gospel was a mystery, as we read here, it was a mystery to them. And they also didn't know as a result who it was before them. They didn't know that standing before them was God in the flesh, their Messiah. And as a result of not knowing this, they, they crucified the Lord of glory. Now here's the first thing I just want you to understand here. It's not as though God was not revealing this mystery in certain ways. It was a mystery, this atoning work, that God would come in the flesh, in the Son, and that He would offer Himself up to take our sins upon Himself on the cross and suffer in our place. It was a mystery in Scripture, but it wasn't a secret. God was, throughout Scripture, revealing this truth and making, or you might say, making this truth known. About 28 generations before this moment in time, before Christ came along, King David wrote Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a graphic and accurate description of the crucifixion of the Messiah. And as you go on and read it, you'll not only see a description of His crucifixion, but you also see a description or an ode to the victorious death that He'll die. In other words, He's going to die, but He's going to rise up, and He's going to be victorious. And the next thing you see as you're reading through Psalm 22 is you see an exclamation 
of his victory and his kingdom spreading throughout all the earth and over all the nations. Our Lord Jesus quoted Psalm 22. They didn't have the phrase Psalm 22 at the time. They just had the leading words at the beginning of every song. It was like the title of the psalm. And our Lord Jesus quoted the title of the psalm when he was hanging upon the cross. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, for those scribes and those leaders at the foot of the cross, when they heard him say that, it would have kicked off in their minds a recollection of what those words were in that psalm. And as those words were beginning to cycle through their minds, they were seeing a portrait of it right before them. Everything that it said was going to be taking place, they were watching and viewing. It was a description of the crucifixion there in Psalm 22. 28 generations before Christ even came along. Yet if they continued to read on, they'd see that this was not the end. The beginning point of God unveiling a wonderful, victorious triumph. 14 generations before David wrote, God had met with Abraham in the regions of Jerusalem, the area of the mountains of Moriah, and God had given a promise to Abraham that he would provide himself a sacrifice. God was already revealing something of this wonderful truth, this great atoning work that he was going to do. Later on, when Moses was given the sacrificial system, and as you understand the sacrificial system that was given as a part of God's law to the nation of Israel, you'll see that it demonstrated that the blood of bulls and goats and sheep could not truly take away sins. And that's why they had to offer those bulls and those goats and those sheep over and over and over again. They only typified, they only gave an expression of the hope that God had revealed to Abraham on Mount Moriah. That one day he would provide himself that one great final sacrifice. And so through all the sacrifices they made, knowing they had to make them over and over again because they were not sufficient to carry forward to cleanse them of all their sins, they were to participate in those acts looking forward to the great day in which God would provide one final great atoning work on their behalf that God himself would provide that final atoning act. Keep reading on throughout the scripture and you'll see some 700 years before the Lord Jesus comes along in Isaiah. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53 a portrait of this Messiah as the great servant. In Isaiah 53 you have this portrait of him suffering and dying and bearing our sins. Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 53. We are most familiar with the initial words of that prophecy. Verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, God was making this thing known. I'll go down to verse 10. Less familiar oftentimes with this portion of the scripture. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul 
unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. There is the prophet Isaiah giving word to, and giving statement to, and expressing this truth that was coming. It wasn't a secret. It was being made known. By the prophets that God continued to speak, they ultimately continue to speak until you come to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the last of the great prophets of Israel. And John the Baptist came proclaiming the coming of the Messiah and announcing his coming. And then when he saw the Lord Jesus along the Jordan River, he turned to the Lord Jesus and pointed everybody in his direction and said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here was the final prophet again declaring this secret. It wasn't a secret. That God was providing an ultimate sacrifice and that sacrifice would ultimately be realized through the Messiah that he had sent to save us from our sins. It was a mystery to them, but it wasn't a secret. And yet with all these revelations of the suffering and dying of the sacrificial nature of the Messiah's coming, there were also revelations of the Messiah when he had come in the Old Testament in which he would rise up from the earth and that he would set up an unending kingdom and he would reign over all the earth and he would throw off all injustice and he would establish a rule of righteousness and all the people would rise as he brought one kingdom and one domain after another domain under his rule and that his rule would be an everlasting rule, an enduring rule that would cover all the face of the earth. Although they did not recognize and didn't understand the secret of this passion and this atoning work of the Messiah, they rallied around this promise of a king that was coming. And they looked for the king to come and reign in that way. They could not get their minds around the idea of the Messiah dying for them as an atoning sacrifice for their sins, but they did understand and even anticipate him coming as a ruling king. They didn't anticipate his bruising, his grief, or how the Lord would make his soul an offering for sin, or how he would bear their iniquities, or how he would pour out his soul unto death, or how he would bear the sins of many, but they fully anticipated that he would see his seed. In other words, that his kingdom would flourish, and that he would prolong his days. In other words, that his, his kingdom would be an enduring kingdom, and that the pleasure of the Lord would prosper in his hand. In other words, that his kingdom would be a prosperous kingdom and a fruitful kingdom of righteous rule, and that he would divide the spoil of his conquest with the strong. In other words, he'd divide it with us. And we'll get an interest in this kingdom that he's bringing to the earth. They were looking for those things. They were understanding those things. That was not so much a mystery to them. But they weren't looking for a Jewish carpenter who would come and stir up the people's hopes only to create problems for them and for Rome and with Rome and also compete with them and threaten their own influence over the people. And so they crucified Jesus of Nazareth Ignorant that they were crucifying the Lord of glory. What I want to focus again is on this, this ignorance. This failure to recognize God's atoning plan to be accomplished through the cross of Jesus Christ. What I want you to see this morning for a moment here is that it was not only the rulers, not only these rulers in Jerusalem at that time that didn't recognize this plan of God and didn't understand it. It was not only they who we're blinded to the mystery that was to be revealed and has been revealed to us. The fact is the whole of Israel, down through their history, never got their minds around this mystery. It was concealed from them. They didn't anticipate or understand the atoning death of the Messiah for their sins. They didn't know how the sacrificial system was pointing the way for them to see that God would provide himself once for all. That's 
the sacrifice to deal with their sinfulness. The prophets themselves did not fully understand what they were writing about. They prophesied better than they knew. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, and let me read to you from chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. The prophets themselves did not understand what they were writing about exactly. Here's what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ or of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you, to those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. I told you that John the Baptist, when he saw the Lord Jesus, pointed to the Lord Jesus and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I don't think John fully understood how that Lamb was going to take away the sins of the world. I don't think he fully understood what he was referring to when he said, Behold the Lamb of God. I don't know that he looked at it. Maybe he was just thinking of the fact, Here is a pure and innocent one who's coming to bring salvation. But I do know John was looking to the Lord Jesus to show up with power and might and to throw off the powers of Rome and to begin introducing his victorious kingdom into the world and into the world in which he lived. Because when John the Baptist found himself in Herod's prison and in the darkness of Herod's prison and the Lord Jesus is not, in a sense, ushering in this kingdom, he sends his own disciples to go and ask Jesus a question. Are you really the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Or do we look for another? He didn't understand it all. He didn't have a full picture of what it was that he was declaring. He himself prophesied better than he knew. And, and if you look at this passage that we just read in 1 Peter, in verse 12, we see here that Peter ends that the angels themselves did not understand exactly the nature of this atoning work. Intimated within this whole passage in 1 Peter is basically the whole topic of the salvation that is realized through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And upon that matter, Peter tells us that these are things that even the angels desire to look into. Appreciate it, don't entirely know it. You go and look through the New Testament and read this New Testament accounts and you'll discover that the demons didn't know about this. They didn't understand the purpose for God coming or Jesus coming before men. They recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew what his name was. They knew who he was, but they didn't understand what his mission was. Take your Bibles now to go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. This is not an, an unfamiliar account, and this is not the first time that something like this takes place. The Lord Jesus is going to confront a man who is demon-possessed, and he's going to deliver this man from his possession. Verses 33 through 35 of Luke chapter 4. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Matthew chapter 8, by the way, there's another account of two demons that are crying out to God. And they in that place say, We know who you are. You are the Son of God, the Holy One of God, the Son of God. And then verse 35 says, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Ephesians chapter 6, 12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities and against powers and against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The demonic hosts exercise a certain kind of dominion on this earth and in its atmosphere, and they have some informing input that they give to the leaders of every age and in every place and the thoughts that are contending for and taking minds away from the truth and wisdom of God. When they encountered the Lord Jesus during the time of his earthly sojourn, they thought that their time was up. (laughs) Have you come now to establish your kingdom? Is this the point of time in which you're going to destroy us or cast us in the pits and do away with us? They were anticipating what we know now Christ will fully accomplish in his second coming. But they weren't anticipating his atoning work. They were not anticipating that he was going to go to the cross and die for our sins. That's not what they thought. That's not what they were anticipating. Here's another one. Satan himself did not know what Christ was to accomplish on the cross. Even though the Lord Jesus spoke regularly to those that were around him, and and I'm sure he was listening in, that he was going up to Jerusalem, and he was going to die, and he was going to lay down his life for a sheep, and that he was going to give himself as a ransom for many and for their sins, and that he was going to be betrayed, and he was going to be beaten and scourged and crucified, and then on the third day he was going to rise again from the dead. Satan never grasped the mystery of God's victory over sin and death and himself that would be accomplished through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. It was Satan who actually entered into Judas after Christ makes all these things known in order to go and sell him out, in order to betray him. It's Satan that prompted Judas to do that. It was Satan, I think, who stirred up the leaders and the masses of the people on the day in which Christ was crucified, to call for his crucifixion and to say among themselves, let his blood be on us and on our children. Of course, Satan thinks, oh, this is great. Let them just come underneath the condemnation of this murderous act. Let his blood speak against them so that they all can rot in judgment. Not knowing that their words and what they said was somewhat prophetic of the fact that the blood might come upon them in atoning grace forgive them and cleanse them. We have to ask ourselves, actually, for a moment, how is it that Satan didn't understand what Christ was about to accomplish at the cross? Take your Bibles again to Colossians chapter 2, just so we remind ourselves of what Christ accomplished at the cross. Colossians chapter 2. Let me read to you verses 13 through 15. It says here, This is our condition before we come to the cross and find our salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He has made alive together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, the law that spoke against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When Christ died on the cross, he took the punishment of my sins and the sentence of guilty that I bear because of my sins. And he took all that guilt and all that punishment upon himself and it was nailed to him at the cross in order that I might be forgiven. And as a result, it says, he has disarmed principalities and powers, and he's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Satan did not see that coming. He didn't anticipate the triumph that would take place at the cross. Yet Jesus regularly and increasingly talked about these things as he was going up to Jerusalem, and as he was making his way to the Passover, still Satan didn't see it coming, and we have to ask why. The answer is this, I think very simply. Because Satan is a murderer. 
Because what roils at the base of his being is a hatred and a destructive force for all that God has made. And as a result, he cannot fathom anything that is done in love. And therefore, he could never have fathomed the love of God displayed in the sacrifice of his son. He could never have understood what it says in Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He couldn't have grasped it. He couldn't have understand it. Satan couldn't have conceived it or known it because it would never have touched his murderous heart. Couldn't have seen it for that reason. Because he was a murderer, even if he could have seen it, he couldn't have done anything about his own nature. The very contours of his nature demanded that he would seek to delight in the death and destruction of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because of his nature and because he destroyed her, he would egg on the brutality that Christ suffered there. And once he was scourged, had the skin stripped from his back in that scourging, and once Christ was crowned with a crown of thorns, and once he was placed not like a lamb on an altar, but like a thief on a cross, naked criminal, nailed in the extreme physical agony of the cross, and once he is now mocked and scorned and his clothes are gambled for and he's dying, Satan gloats that his murderous passions have been satiated for the moment. He had no idea what God was doing and how God was using his own energies to accomplish the singular and final salvation that you and I can enjoy through Jesus Christ and his suffering for us. He didn't know it. He didn't understand it. Help you understand some. The disciples didn't understand it either. If you go and you read the accounts, the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll see on three different separate occasions, we're told that the Lord Jesus began to teach them of what was facing him in Jerusalem. When it says he began to teach them, it doesn't say he just taught them and made one reference to it, to it, and another time he made some cryptic reference to it. It meant that there were three separate episodes or times in which Lord Jesus very clearly began to elucidate to them what exactly was going before him and what he was going to be accomplishing doing in Jerusalem, and they didn't get it. The first time that he teaches these things is after he divides the loaves and the fishes and feeds the 5,000. And at that point, we're told that he begins to teach them that he's going to go to Jerusalem and that he's going to suffer and that he's going to be crucified and that three days later he's going to rise from the dead. And they didn't believe it. And at that exact same time, it's, it's corresponding to that time that he did that. It's also when he starts talking to the people about the fact that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Which, by the way, is a reference to the concept that was put forward in the Passover meal, in which the people would eat a portion of the Passover lamb, and which they would celebrate different cups of wine. And one of them is the cup of redemption that they would drink together. And on the Last Supper, when the Lord Jesus is with his disciples, you might remember he takes the third cup, which is the cup of redemption, and says, This is my blood given to you as a New Testament or New Covenant. God's work of God's redeeming and saving work, they didn't get it. In fact, after he began teaching this way, we're told that the people departed from him, and many of them left him at that time. The second time that the Lord Jesus begins teaching this is after he takes Peter, James, and John up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and there he's transfigured before their eyes, and there Elijah and Moses, they see him, the Lord Jesus speaking with them and talking to them about his departure in Jerusalem, about what God is doing, and... They didn't understand that either. After that, he began speaking to them and speaking plainly to them about his going to Jerusalem and suffering and dying and rising again on the third day. And then again, after that, as he's making his way up to Jerusalem for the last Passover, as they're passing from Jericho and moving on, again we're told that Jesus began speaking of these things. 
In fact, in Luke chapter 18, let me read to you verses 31 through 34 of Luke chapter 18. Just in this last moments, it says this. Then he took the twelve aside and he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and insulted, and spit upon, and they will scourge him, and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not know the things which were spoken. It remained a mystery to them. Something. God was actually making it known throughout the scriptures and the prophets, even as Jesus says here. They, they couldn't get their minds around it. They couldn't understand it. What's the application of this? What does it demonstrate? It demonstrates this. Understand this. This saving, atoning work of God through the Son, Jesus Christ, is so wonderful that it can only be revealed, it cannot be discovered. You are not going to come to an understanding of these things by your own imagination. No person's imagination would have ever dreamed this up. No created mind would have ever invented it. No soul of man could have ever hoped for it. So deep and wide is the love of God expressed in the dying of Christ for we sinners and for our rebellious and fallen race that only the Spirit of God prompting, nurturing, unveiling, could ever make it known to us? Could we ever know it and understand it and grasp it? It is not something that's produced in us by our own reasoning and by our own concepts. It's not the nature and outcome of some natural theology in which we look out and think, what would be the remedy for this world? We'd never grasp it, never come to it. God had to reveal it. The Spirit of God had to put it in our hearts and our minds to understand it. We could never have conceived it unless God revealed it, God accomplished it, God opened our eyes to understand it. That's it. This is too profound. This is too wonderful. That all of the recorded record of God's ongoing progressive revelation from Adam all the way down, from the promise that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head, all the way through all the recorded revelations that were given to Abraham and given through Moses and given through the prophets and through Isaiah and John the Baptist and... Jesus himself. They weren't going to get it. Unless God revealed it to their hearts. And God opened their hearts to understand these things. And God made known this mystery. So here's the application to all this. This is why when we have a little Bible study and we gather together and we're sitting in a circle, we pray, God, make your word known to us. No other way that we'll know it. Behind the truth of God's word resides this pulsating wonderful truth of the atoning work of Jesus Christ who was the word made flesh, who was the embodiment of the law of God that we have broken, who kept that law perfectly and then died in our place. And through him he brings an illumination to all the word because it all coalesces in him and we could never know it unless God makes it known to us. So we pray God make it known that this is why. Before every sermon, we pray, O oh God, fill us with your spirit. Give us knowledge and understanding in these things. We also pray for lost people, that they might be granted a glimpse of God's power and God's wonder and God's wisdom in saving men through Jesus Christ. If God does not open their eyes to see these things, if God does not open their eyes to embrace and catch the glimpse of the wonderful wisdom in his salvation, 
They'll continue to go on plotting their own salvation and they'll continue to go on constructing their own kingdoms and they'll continue rejecting from their hearts the very Lord of glory. They'll do it. As God reveals it to them. That's why Paul, when he's even speaking to believers in Ephesians 1, at the very beginning, before he begins instructing them or teaching, he says, I pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. God has to give us eyes to see what no person can perceive and understand through natural wisdom. What does the Bible say? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. That the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You could be telling a person so plainly and clearly the wonderful truths of the gospel, but unless God enters in on the scene, unless God takes a work to reveal it to their minds, they'll only maybe understand the outward form of the truth, but they'll never be able to appreciate the depth of it, the glorious depths and wonder of the love of God. I'll never be able to respond to it. You come yourself before God's word, and, and you should be saying, God, leave me not with my own nature before this truth. Oh, God, in this moment, come in your regenerating life and power to speak to me. Spirit of God, illuminate me and make these revelations known to my heart so that I might love you more and serve you better and live in complete surrender. Give me an enduring faith that is drawn from an unforgettable sight. The saving work of my Lord Jesus dying in my place on the cross. That's what we need. That's what we have to pray for. The gospel will never be glorious to you if you see only it through the eyes of your flesh. We pray for our children the same way. They'll never understand the beauty of our Savior unless the Savior reveals to them the depth of their sin and the glory of His tender love and complete love in dying for their sins on the cross. And Christ must reveal it to them. Oh God, make this known to my child. Make this known to my neighbor. Make this known to my friend. Oh God, how can I pray that you make that known to them? God, make it known to me. Let me live always under the revealing spirit, making known to me these truths. Show me more of it. Lead me further and further into the depths of your love poured out for me on the cross. Let my life pursuit be to grow in the knowledge of you, my Savior, and the glories of my Christ and his cross. When, when Paul says, I determined to do nothing among you but Jesus Christ and was crucified, he's not simply saying, I determined just to make known to you the story of Jesus and his cross. I determined just to give you this message over and over again. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, my life before you, my life everywhere I go, the whole intent of my being is I want to know more about Jesus. And I want to know more about his suffering for my sake and for my behalf. I want to love him better through the cross. Now that ought to be our prayer request as well. If we're going to bring the message of the cross to a dying world, we're going to have to intercede for that dying world. We're going to have to pray that God gives individuals this sight, this idea, that God would open the eyes of their hearts to perceive and understand what God has done through his revelatory power. But if we're going to do that, it have to be our prayer request and our desire that God would always renew us in that truth himself. It won't do that we just assent mentally to certain ideas and concepts. It won't do that we gather together periodically to agree that we believe that Jesus died for our sins and we know all the doctrinal statements. It won't suffice. 
We will just move progressively forward from generation to generation, giving assent to these things, and we'll lose our power to proclaim this message to others unless from moment to moment in our own hearts we are drawn into the love of Jesus Christ that was revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ for us. We'll just be ignorant of these things. As a result, without knowing it, we'll little by little and incrementally be denying the Lord of glory. If I could go back and I could think of the various ministries I had, I wish I could go back. If I could stand before the first congregation I preached to of about 250 people in Richmond, British Columbia. If I go back to the church that I ministered where another large crowd of people were gathered in Calgary, Alberta, and I could go back and tell them what I know now, I would say this. Many of you will not be here 10, 15, 20 years from now. Christ will not be everything to you. The conventions of demonstrating your faithfulness or the programs that drew you or the ideas that for a moment of time made you feel special will have been discarded. Your values in trying to embrace the Christian life will be put aside because other things will take them place and your pursuits will be after the things of the world. And 20 years from now, a large number of you will not be here. And the only way you're going to remain here is if God gives you a revelation to your heart of what He revealed and what He accomplished when He died on the cross for your sins. And it overwhelms your life. And then your life pursuit will be to know that more. To know it more. And to love Him more as a result. And so the prayer might be in my life, Oh God, then reveal the depth of your love to them. To the cross, make it known to them. Oh God, reveal it to me. Let me live before my Savior Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now if you make that your prayer request, God, I just want to progress in a deepening knowing of You and Your sacrificial atoning death in my place. I don't know exactly where that will take you. I don't know... What God is going to have to lead you through to open up to your eyes the implications of your own sinfulness apart from Him and the sufficiency of His death in your place. I don't know. But I believe that if that becomes your regular plea and prayer for yourself, that He will equip you to bring that mystery to others through the power of the Holy Spirit. That as you pray for God to continue to pour out upon you the spirit of revelation before the cross of Jesus Christ, that you'll recognize the Lord of glory. And as a result, you'll be able to take that Lord of glory to others who need to see Him in the power of the Spirit. Let's bow our heads in this prayer. God, my prayer reaches back now to those who have stood before Your truth, have given their amens, who have sang their songs, who were part of the program and the multitude and the crowds that were singing their praises and they didn't know that 10 or 15 years later they would lose interest in these things. That other interests would consume their minds and their hearts. They'd be taken up more with what they were going to do in their retirement or what they were going to accomplish or what kind of lives their children would live and how they could just affirm them, not offend them. God... Stir up within their hearts those truths and those seeds that were planted so long ago. Forget not the prayers of pastors that were prayed over them before that word. Be merciful, O God. Convict them of these truths. 
bring back to them the flashing light of revelation of Jesus and his supreme love and suffering and self-giving for them in the cross. Oh, Lord, turn them back to say, how can I help but love you? You've loved me so. Bring them back, oh God, into complete and total surrender and make their lives again to be a pursuit to know you, to know you, to know you at the cross where you suffered and died for their sins, to know you in your redemptive power and transforming grace. Lord, I pray that for this congregation as well. I pray that you would guard the seeds that are planted from your word in this place and as they study in their homes and that you would chase off the birds of the air that would try to pluck it away, that you would deny the enemy's attempt to deny us of our Lord. Instead, make it our determined pursuit, our persistent request, O God, that you might show us your glory and that we might see the glory of your Son. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.